0: episode of the Detox Podcast, a culture and conversation podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. I'm your host, O'Shawn. On today's episode, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with author Jason Cohen. Writer at large and former senior editor Jason Cohen has written for Texas Monthly since 1995 and TexasMonthly.com since its first iteration. His 1997 story, The Ice Bats Cometh, About minor league hockey in Texas was the basis of his book Zamboni Rodeo. That's a little blurb about him from TexasMonthly.com and that is what we get into today. We talk about his book Zamboni Rodeo Chasing Hockey Dreams from Austin to Albuquerque about how he got the opportunity to follow around a minor league team in Texas for an entire season and document the highs and lows and the in-betweens of minor league sports in this country. So I'm excited for you to get to hear this episode but first I want to let you know that today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Empire Toys. Nostalgia is something everyone loves, and Empire Toys in Keller, Texas is on Nostalgia Overload. with Toys and action figures from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, Empire Toys is a one-stop shop for a trip down memory lane, a chance to reclaim what was once yours, but likely sold at a garage sale. Check out Empire Toys on Facebook, Instagram, or at TheEmpireToys.com. And by Self Unbound, your quality of life. Physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually is a direct reflection of the level of abundant energy, ease, and connection your nervous system has to experience your life. At Self Unbound, your nervous system takes center stage as they help unbind your limited healing potential through network, spinal, care. Access the first steps to your Unbound journey by following them on Facebook, Instagram, or at www.selfunbound.com. Now, without further ado, my interview with Jason Cohen is right up after this. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast with me at this time. I'm excited. I've been wanting to interview this individual about his interviews, uh, specifically a book that he put together way back when called Zamboni Rodeo, Chasing Hockey Dreams from Austin to Albuquerque. Jason Cohen. Jason, how are you doing today?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yes, it's been long in the works, hasn't it?
0: It has been, and I'm very excited. I'm. I am probably. I think I'm often excited to talk to my guest and and talk about the topics and all of these excellent things. I am definitely. I would say more excited than probably anybody that's going to be listening to this podcast. No offense to anybody that's listening, but mm-hmm. there is something special to me about minor league sports. One, minor league hockey. Two. Minor league hockey in Texas, three. And when you mentioned the Fort Worth Brahmas in like a little bit of an aside, four. And specifically me remembering that period of time in my life, which was so impressionable. Five. I mean, you put that together. It's a powerful fist of an episode. That sounded weird. But it is a fa- powerful five point of an episode. Five minutes for fighting of an episode. There we go. Bringing it back around. Um, All right. I'm wrapping the gloves. There it is. There it is. So, um, But before we get into that, because there's a lot that I want to talk about from your journalistic background, the genesis of Zamboni Rodeo, where life has kind of taken you since then and, and reflect on that. So we'll get into all those topics. Before we do that, if you're new to the Detox podcast, uh, we invite you to quote unquote detox from the world around you while you're listening to the episode and, and get a window into how other people live their lives. And I like to ask my guests at the start of the episode one question. And Jason, I'll ask you, what are you currently,
1: I'll use air quotes here, detoxing from? Oh boy. has <laughs> been well, I like everybody, I think still the pandemic in some yeah. ways and, and, and all the disruption and, and changes and never ending uh issues there. Some some they loom large larger for some than others, it seems. Yeah. But um I, I recently moved from uh Portland, Oregon, which which is where I moved since the last time I lived in Texas, um, to Philadelphia, which is where I'm from. And I, I've never lived here as an adult. But um it's cool. The city's great. It's a lot of fun, but but a big part of the reason why I'm moving is uh, just the aging parents thing and and some health issues with with both my parents. so so that's been probably the biggest thing. the biggest thing that uh, you know I need to detox from or, or or take a breather from occasionally when when possible. so yeah. yeah,
0: you know i i it's so interesting to me that we're that you brought up the pandemic in in a sense, I was reflecting on this earlier today on how so a couple of things i think one as as there's a, been a bit of a rush to sort of go go to a state of activity that folks were used to pre-pandemic that's how i'm going to say it instead mm-hmm. of, instead of returning to normal i hate that phrase or better yet ending the pandemic right like it's not it's not over we're still in the middle of it um but yeah. going but rushing back into an activity state that was pre-pandemic Um, A couple of things were interesting to me as I sort of got swept in it for necessity of work or other life or, I mean, kids got activities. There's a lot of things. Uh, One, I have a lower and a higher tolerance for certain situations. One, I have a higher tolerance for uh, some patience. I'm finding I've developed quite a bit more patience than I used to have. And it's because I have a lower tolerance for bullshit. So I've been <laughs> saying no to so many things that I don't believe add value to my life, whether it's mine directly or my family's. So by sort of removing several of those interactions and occurrences, it's brought me back to a state where I now have capacity to have higher patience for when things maybe aren't going the way we want them to go, or maybe there's there's a lot to do in any single week or month. Um, but when things are harder, I'm finding I have more patience to navigate it in those situations because of the removal of a lot of these other distractions. Um, so that's been something that I've been trying to sort of reflect in and detox from is just the, the alignment of priorities in that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, like I was thinking, you know, when people used to say YOLO, right, it seemed like this really frivolous, you know, shallow <laughs> thing. And I feel like the pandemic kind of changed the meaning of that. And so, like on the one hand, I, I have that attitude a lot of times now. And on the other hand, it, it's also, you're also capable of saying, well, you know, I might not have the energy for this, or I'm not quite ready to venture out into this and, you know, you know, go as hard as as I used to, you know, exactly. whether that means going to see the bands, you know, three times a week, maybe I only go once a week or right. even sports, you know, like, like, uh, going to, to a big crowd in a hockey game. It's still, it's not, at this point, it's not like, Oh, I'm worried that I'm going to catch COVID at a big indoor hockey game. It's just more like readjusting to like being in those crowds and, yeah. and you know, being fully present with that energy you know, and not thinking about what was before.
0: That's a really good point. I think the first time that I flew on an airplane since the pandemic was last summer. And I was struck by how how did I word it at the time? Um, how unfamiliar familiar it was. Like it was so, fam- it was like muscle memory in a lot of ways, right? Is really what it felt like. But it was so unfamiliar because I hadn't been used to that energy and that sort of bustle in so many years that it was hard to to understand. I love going to sporting events and I've still not been to a sporting event absent my daughter's like soccer game on Saturday mornings since the pandemic, because of that very thing. I'm like, I don't know that I can be with that amount of energy all at one time yet sort of building up to that. And it's, it's, it's hard, but it's, I mean, I think the, the awareness of that is, is what's key
1: to sort of reentering in a mindful way. And I mean, you do, you end up doing a cost benefit analysis, basically like, is, is this worth it? Is it worth right. the energy? Is it when the COVID was actually more of a concern? Is it worth the risk? And, you know, it's a, it's, it's a weird thing to like say to a, you know, not to their face, but to think about a musician and be like, well, you know, this musician, I would, I would take this risk and this musician, I wouldn't. And, and <laughs> it was the same with sports. I was fortunate enough to uh, be able to get an NLS cup in Portland when well, the awesome. team were in the finals last year and it was outdoors. So, so yeah, that was a no brainer and it was work so that, you know, even, so you kind of justify it like well, it's my job. I gotta, I gotta do it. Right. And then, uh, I moved to Philadelphia. So I actually did get to go to the world series, but I haven't really been to a, I've been a one flyers game for work cause they were playing the stars and I thought, well, I should, I should go, you know,
0: go stars. But, um,
1: yeah. 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 And I can walk to, to the, the rink. So oh, I mean, that's it's, awesome. it's crazy to think the rank, you know, the beer, yeah. you know, the Wells Fargo center, but <laughs> the barn, the barn, we would call it, you know, <laughs> but it is crazy to think, as you know, in the book, I talk about how I was born basically the same year as the flyers and, yep. you know, Whatever passion I had for hockey in Texas certainly started here, so so yeah. it is kind of full
0: circle. Yeah. Well, speaking of hockey and speaking of the barn, I think that's a nice way to to kind of introduce your book. So your book, as I mentioned at the top, Zamboni Rodeo: Chasing Hockey Dreams from Austin to Albuquerque, sees you following the Austin Ice Bats minor league hockey team for one full season, and uh, they played in. The barn, I believe, the barn was the nickname
1: for the ice. Bat, or it was the bat. The, um, the, no. the, well, it was the bat. It was the Bat Cave. The bat cave. But you know, I'm thinking of a different the Travis, team. the Travis County Expo Center. You know, it, it literally was the Rodeo Barn, though.
0: That's right. That's right. And uh, so, growing up in the Dallas Fort Worth area, um, uh, I grew up with the Fort Worth Fire, and then later the Fort Worth Brahmas, and of which you cover the Brahmas, and we're going to get into that. I'm wearing purple today in honor of in honor Indeed. of the Brahmas, <laughs> and um, and the Fort Worth Fire. Uh, for those that are listening and care, would play at the Fort Worth Convention Center, uh, which no longer exists anymore. And it was the Tarrant County Convention Center at the time. And mm-hmm. then uh, would shift every season, about halfway through, would have to play at the Will Rogers Memorial Coliseum because there was the circus or there was something else going on at the convention center. But then they would have to shift back from Will Rogers because the rodeo would come into town. And so you'd be competing with ice and the rodeo. And I just remember the... Uh, the spaciousness of the convention center was better and it was more conducive to a professional environment, but there was something about the atmosphere of being in a, a an arena designed for a rodeo where you're sort of like sitting on top of the action yeah, yeah. that you just couldn't beat. And that's sort of, I remember going to Austin for some of the games and sitting in the same space and it feeling kind of like you're on top of the action really as a fan makes you more invested in the game so i want to ask you kind of before we even dive into specifics on the book what was some of your origins of writing and going getting into
1: journalism what was that path for you um it was really it was mostly music i would say i mean i always like sports but uh but um like those two twins didn't really meet back then weirdly like you know especially like in indie rock and you know punk rock whatever you know sports was for you know the cool kids and right. and you know music was for the nerds right but but i i was yeah i was just really in music i mean i wrote in high school um the one of the formative things in high school was um the hooters who were from philadelphia you know were hugely popular locally and they used to actually play high schools oh, and i got awesome. to be on like the crew when i was a freshman that was like the first time that like I had any sense of like musicians like just sort of being normal people and what it was like at a different level you know you know not unlike the minors really I mean right. what could be I mean playing in high schools what could be more minor league than <laughs> yeah. you know for for a band that would eventually become huge and I was a big Springsteen fan as most people in Philly are you know yeah. he just started his tour last night and he'll be coming here soon so so that was part of it so yeah I just kind of you know I just wanted to write about music and uh, I went to Northwestern where they had a really good college radio station and that was a huge part of my my choice as well and um when I was in high school, my guidance counselor, taught, you know, I would say that, and he's like, "Oh, you know, once you get to college, you're not going to want to go to the city. You're not going to care about that stuff. You're just going to, you know, be in college. You're going to have campus life." And I was like, "Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. You know, like, <laughs> like you, didn't, you know, because I wanted to be in Boston or Chicago or Philadelphia or New York. You know, I really wanted to be in a city. And and that is what happened. I mean, I went to Chicago and." started working at the radio station and my whole life was you know twice twice a week three times a week getting on the L and going to see shows in Chicago and and working at the radio station and that's where I started interviewing people and you know on the radio and I mean it's it's funny because you know they have to answer, right? Like I'm sitting here, I have to answer, we're live, right? right. And, you know, it's very different with, with newspaper, you know, where, where people can kind of stonewall or not give you a good enough answer and you kind of be like, have to move on. So I you know, I had to learn to sort of think on my feet there. And sometimes I would do, we, we talked about this briefly off, off the air, you know, a band would just show up and I wouldn't know anything about them. And it's like, oh, okay, I'm interviewing you guys, all right. <laughs> So where are you, where are you from? Oh, you know, you're the fluid from Denver. You know, yeah. they turned out to be like a real, you know, real big band. But at the time, you know, they just showed up and the person that was supposed to interview them wasn't there and it's like, Okay, the flaming lips, same thing.
0: You know, oh
1: like yeah, like, yeah. like, oh cool. Like they show oh, the the record with the with the eyeball. <laughs> sorry, we're not on video, but right but yeah, but yeah they're still like really new and and but there's something to be said for that too. Like, like when you don't know too much, you you just ask questions that you actually want to know the answer to. Right. You know, as as opposed to sort of over preparing and kind of already knowing the answer and then just kind of getting them to say it. You know, right. Anyway. know. Yeah. So so yeah, it was all music. And I wrote for the paper too, the high school paper. I mean, and the college paper. And uh, so that eventually, I guess, made me go get a master's in journalism. Um, I briefly work in the music business. Yeah. And decided, you know, it, it felt like selling shoes kind of like sometimes if sometimes you like the shoes and that made it more fun to sell and other times you didn't like the shoes and you still had to sell them the same way right. <laughs> it wasn't crazy about that and i mean i learned in journalism that like you know that doesn't matter either like like a lot of people who take the path i took will only write about things they like mm-hmm. or they're only in it because of, you know they love it they you know they love music and they want to write about the music that they love and then you start to realize that you're not a fan you know you're a critic you're a reporter and, you know, you can tell stories about things. You don't have to like them. Yeah. They can just be good stories, you yeah.
0: so. I, one of the things that I really appreciate, you brought up the stories and I've always loved um, the art of storytelling, right? And then, and I often think about um, this podcast and, and other projects that I'm working on as the ability to sort of uh, collect stories and help amplify them because I'm in, intensely interested in every single person's story, because we all have our own unique story, sort of in this world, and it's the the ability to uh, kind of sit and listen and absorb that fascinates me. And I do love there is um, there are so many times where I love sort of knowing enough about the person I'm in, in interviewing, but not enough to over-prepare and then sort of like, you know, ask some of the boilerplate questions, but really get at, get down into something that they say or something that they're interested in. Um, and I, I, I love that. So I love your story about stories and about talking to the artists and then really understanding kind of how to think on your feet how to be with a wide variety of people at any given moment and and just get the perspectives and stories from them so when you got your your
1: master's in journalism
0: (laughs) remind me did you get that at the university of texas at austin i did yeah yeah yeah, i was a kid from texas
1: kid from philadelphia living in new york and uh Had the opportunity to go back to Northwestern, but was also breaking up with my girlfriend from Northwestern. We were living together in New York, but uh, so that didn't seem like as good an idea. And uh, I actually, sports does come into it. Um, I went down to Texas um, to see Penn State play Texas in football. My dad went to Penn State, so I grew up a a Penn State football fan, and um, that was when uh, Peter Gardeer was the UT quarterback. That's right. uh, they actually swapped, uh, Penn State actually won in Austin, and then the next year, UT won in, in State College, and by then, I was living there, and I had knew, I knew a lot of bands from Austin, yeah. you know, the Austin music scene of the late 80s, the so-called New Sincerity, you know, the Zeitgeist, Wild Seeds, Glass Eye, yep. Daniel Johnston, True Believers, I had seen the MTV show about that, I had played the records on my radio station in, in Chicago, and so that was really, and, I, and the songwriters, I was I was into like Steve Earle and Nancy Griffith and Lyle Lovett, the, yeah. the same Dudes in Philadelphia that sold me like post-punk records, also yeah. sold me you know, alt-country records, which yeah. we didn't call it alt-country yet. Right. Then. But um, but yeah, so Austin, you know, football wasn't what brought me there, but it, but it did literally get me to visit there. But you know, the Austin of my imagination already kind of existed, in the music, and, you know, made it feel like a place that I would enjoy. And certainly, when I got there, you know, Austin in 1990 was, was certainly a, everyone says every, everyone says the time they got there was the golden age, but uh, you know. <laughs> There is a real cutoff at some point, I think. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I um. So I'm a native Texan, born and bred, and and born and bred in in North Texas, but grew up actually going to West Texas a lot. Um. Mm. So that's why I actually have quite an a uh, and uh, That's another reason. a sixth reason, perhaps, as to why I love the book because, um. So every other summer we would go up to Colorado. My dad's work would have like a month long business retreat, planning, et cetera, thing that they would do on the campus, Colorado State University. And I think it was every year and then families could go every other year or it was rotated, it was something. But I remember we only went every other year, but we would always go up through Amarillo and then up through New Mexico and then into Denver and then Fort Collins. And so that's sort of the impressionable time period of my Texas and I grew up having an appreciation for Texas sort of far and wide and um, I am definitely biased, but I love Texas. And what I love about Texas is you can get the Austin music scene of the 90s and how eclectic and cool and interesting it is. And also get the, like, beauty and peace in the plains and the, the kind of slower pace of life, um, but, but very honest uh, in certain aspects in the West. And you get kind of a hustle and bustle and a different sort of corporate vibe almost in Dallas. Um, but then you also still have like the heart of people. And like, I don't know if you're not in like from Texas or in Texas, it might seem like very weird what I'm talking about, but I, I love it. And so the, the Austin aspect of the nineties wholeheartedly agree to me, Austin at that time period, obviously I was definitely younger, but it felt like the cooler older brother from like a city perspective of like, Ooh, they've got the great records. They've got the great fashion. They've got the great like ideas, all this cool stuff. And you want to go and visit. So how did you, did you get a gig working for Texas monthly, um, while you were getting your master's degree or was that afterwards?
1: Oh no, it was, it was a somewhat longer and more roundabout process okay. uh, for sure. How did that um, work out? I, I landed at the, uh, the Austin Chronicle. Okay. And you. and I and I landed there like immediately. I mean, I was already writing for um, Option Magazine, which was kind of a small independent music magazine, you know, but national. And so I I'd, I'd started doing a little bit of writing, and um, I I knew of I didn't know, but I knew of and had mutual friends with Michael Corcoran, who has also done some time in Dallas and used to work at the American Statesman and had written for Spin in the '80s, and he was the music editor of the Austin Chronicle, or so I was told. And you know, so I I marched in there, you know, the in September of 1990, you know, looking for him, and they're like, oh, he doesn't he doesn't work anymore. I think he moved to Chicago at that point. I think he was at the Chicago Sun Times, um, and uh, so I met his replacement, who was this guy named Brent Grolke and he was he was a another big austin music guy he'd been a sound guy he'd, he was friends with all the bands he wrote a wild seed song he had literally been we'd been in the same rooms in chicago you know several times without ever knowing each other of course only later oh you were on tour with that band yeah i was at that show and he, he unfortunately he, he died in in 2012 but he he ended up uh, going on to run south by southwest he was the, the head of south by southwest music so for better or worse a lot of what of south by southwest became Uh, you know, was, was his doing. And, and, and he was, you know, just a huge passionate music guy and, you know, could talk your ear off about anything music wise. And so, yeah, he, you know, luckily, you know, he took a quick look at my clips and was like, Oh yeah, yeah. You know, you can, you can write for us. So, uh, so I was there for a couple of years while I was in grad school, you know, and I was like assistant music editor and, you know, again, just did a lot of writing. I mean, that was the beauty of the alt weekly era, obviously the blog, blog era had some of that, you know, I don't think it was quite the same, but yeah, you just, the main thing, grad school was a piece of paper, you know, the, the Chronicle was my real education. It was, you know, just writing every week, you know, writing music, interviewing bands, reviewing bands, seeing stuff and being there right at the same time South by Southwest was starting. Yeah. It was obviously a nice thing. So, um, towards the end of my time there. I don't remember which came first, but um, because of South by Southwest, you know, all the national music people would, would come to Austin too. So David Frick from Rolling Stone, you know, I'd, I guess I'd met him or he had read my stuff in the Chronicle and they needed somebody in Austin to write about the butthole surfers. Yep. And, and this was, we can say that because this is a podcast, not a radio station. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, this was an optimal time for, you know, someone my age back then again, you know, the nineties, like the, you know, Nirvana hadn't quite happened yet, but, or maybe they had at that point, but like the, the magazine's, suddenly needed some younger people to write about the newer popular you know post punk bands right. you know and uh, i mean i had read them you know i had learned about ram and all those kinds of bands from those people 10 years previous and now they needed a new generation so so there was that the coming rolling stone and then um, pat Blaschel, who is a, you know kind of a great legendary austin uh, photographer and writer and is still out there actually posting. He just published a book a couple of years ago and he's got some social media accounts where he's always posting great old pictures of Austin in, in the eighties and the early nineties. He had become an editor at Details Magazine, which at the time was, it was one of four or five different incarnations of details that have existed over the years. And uh, he brought me there and they asked me to write about uh, Richard Linklater who was making Days of Confused. Yeah. So again, it's kind of right place, right time. Oh,
0: that's right, yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, and so, so the, those, I wrote for both of those magazines fairly regularly. And then a few years later, uh, Evan Smith, who was just starting at Texas Monthly, and he eventually became, he was never actually the editor-in-chief of, of well, no, he was eventually the editor-in-chief. He didn't—he wasn't immediately the editor-in-chief. So he, he eventually became the editor-in-chief and then the publisher, and then he left for the Texas Tribune. So um, at some point, Evan was kind of like, why is this guy sitting here in our backyard, you know, writing for Rolling Stone and, and details and not writing for us? Yeah. Nah. And that was kind of <laughs> how I started writing for Texas Monthly.
0: Well, you talk about days and Confused. Didn't you write the first uh, story for Matthew McConaughey or this first story that featured Matthew McConaughey? Am I remembering that correctly? In Texas Monthly. Yeah. Yeah. So I started,
1: yeah. So I started, you know, I wrote about the Butthole Surfers for yeah. Texas Monthly as well. I wrote about Daniel Johnston, you know, I wrote, you know, for a while there just stayed in my kind of normal, you know, normal wheelhouse of sort of music and, and movies. And, and, um and then, yeah, uh, I th- I don't know if, if I it was my idea or if it was their idea but like you know he was nobody obviously you right know, He's just a, a guy from days and confused like he said yeah. all right all right all right and he's you know but he's going to be the next Paul Newman all of a sudden right with, yeah. with time to kill yeah and, uh, and it, it's a it, it's crazy like you know just the nature of Hollywood and the magazine business back then compared to now yeah you know there's there's not as much you know media there's not as much money to do real reporting you know people are much more guarded but you know like that trip I mean, I, I don't think I even met him in, in Austin. So I just went out to LA, you know, he invited me over to his house and, you know, this is what you do back then. And, you right. know, it's very contrived, right? Oh, we're going to pretend to hang out at your house. And then, you know, in the story, we'll act like we're friends. Nevertheless, I'm hanging out at his house. You know, he's showing me his University of Texas, you know, degree on the wall that he's super proud of, you know, and, and uh, you know, that his parents were really proud of. And then like his friends come over for a barbecue and one of his friends is Sandra Bullock, you know, and, <laughs> <laughs> Sandy, this is Sandy, you know, so that was, you know, that was crazy yeah and then we like sat at a you know deli in santa monica and like did an interview and uh and then like he disappeared on me for like four days and they're like oh well no problem just stay out there you know until until you can get your next interview you know which is crazy <laughs> like to think that i could just stay you know stay on on the magazine's dime for four more days in la he was making a uh, quick change then which was the bill murray movie about killing oh, yeah, yeah. an elephant he had a small part in that and I think that's what happened. It kind of it slowed things down and I eventually went on the set of quick change. And I also went to freaking Joel Schumacher's house. You know, he directed A Time to Kill, you know, and at that point he hadn't even and, directed Batman Forever. I was going to
0: say, and the the infamous Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, right? Like,
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. And I mean, he had at that point, he hadn't done those, but he'd right. done, you know, Almost Fire and, you know, all that, all that stuff. Right. Yeah, so I got to go to his crazy, as you'd imagine, spectacular, over-the-top Hollywood house. And, you know, it's just insane to think, like, that anyone even would even, you know, make that time, you know, right. make that 10 minutes for you now, you know.
0: It is it is it is wild. I've had the fortunate uh, opportunity to interview via, most of the time, virtual, uh, quite a few uh, interesting people. And the thought of, like, like... <laughs> <laughs> Taking that experience and putting it in person like wouldn't wouldn't happen with with some some folks today. Um, uh, but it's just different time, different expectations, different situations. Um, now I wanna I wanna so all of this is fantastic and it gets us it gets you in Austin. And before we even talk about your ice bats cometh article, which was the precursor to Zamboni Rodeo, I want to give the listeners sort of a I want to lay the groundwork for those that may not understand. So um, hockey, uh, typically a northern sport, uh, made its way down. I actually remember I was told, I was told, I don't know how true this is. I haven't been able to fact check yet. Um, It's one of those stories passed down from my dad and and so on and so forth. But I believe that my relative uh, played in, uh, if not for the Detroit Cougars, pre-Red Wings, but played in their farm system, which their farm affiliate, I believe, was Fort Worth. So at one point in time, played for the Fort Worth affiliate. And this was years before the fire or anything like that. So there were, there were several minor league leagues and teams That populated Texas through '70s and '80s, and of course the '90s. Um, There was in Fort Worth. There were the Fort Worth Texans, and then later there was Mm -hmm. the Fort Worth Fire, and then later the Fort Worth Brahmas, Um, and several iterations of that. I think what's interesting to me is the fact that there's sort of um, a continual. There was a continual effort to make hockey in Texas stick. And I think you bring it up, I don't know if it's in the article or in the book or maybe both, but you bring up the fact that there is almost a natural fit for hockey from a state that produces such um, um, such a powerhouse athletes in football, where we're used to sort of the bruising and brawling and hitting, to have a sport like that, but speed it up and put it on ice um, is, and actually have fighting within the sport is a recipe for success from a spectator perspective. And I think what used to historically sort of uh, die it out is the fact that a lot of people, I think, um, were so used to sort of more, um, not traditional sports, but but I guess it was an, it was a novelty. It was almost like a novelty. And I think over time, it loses a little bit of its luster if you don't sort of become a full-fledged fan of it. Cause like I, you know, I would enjoy going to the circus, but if the circus was there every single week, I wouldn't necessarily go unless I was all in. In and not to call hockey a circus, but I just, wanna, <laughs> I just want to say, although sometimes it can be. um But for folks that are listening, so the southern part of the United States and specifically Texas is used to having football, and you also have your traditional sports, basketball, baseball, etc. Um, hockey comes to town in various iterations and incarnations, but specifically. Um, in this book, there's the creation of this league called the Western Professional Hockey League, or the Wiffle, and it uh, has teams based in Texas, New Mexico, um, uh, at Georgia, Mississippi, uh, a lot, basically the southern and southeastern and some southwestern part of the United States. And it was an attempt to sort of capture some of these pockets and markets that hadn't been tapped in some of these other. Uh, East Coast Hockey League, Central Hockey Leagues that had existed previously and to continue to grow the game of hockey. So that's sort of the landscape. That was a little bit of a a long and not concise way to explain it, but I was sort of talking through a couple thoughts there. Um, And when you wrote the article about the ice bats in February 97, that was the first season of the Western Professional Hockey League in 96, 97. And your book, Zamboni Rodeo, occurs the second season, 97, 98 which I'm aware of. And I had to keep doing some math in my head because the first season of the WPHL was uh, the, the Fort Worth promise did not exist in that league. There was only the fourth fire, which won the CHL right. championship. And then the next year, I don't know if people know this. I don't even know if you know this, but the, there was a stolen. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the guy's name. I won't say the name in case like, you know, you never know, but there was a local businessman who wanted his own team and wanted to buy the fire. The story I heard was he wanted to buy the fire um, and couldn't get it. And so it was like, well, fine. I will just gut the fire, create my own team in this new league, and bribe the entire championship winning team over with a few substitutions, right? La- Rob right. and Goal, Chris Albert um, and then, or Chris Albert, and then there was a Francois Albert later. Sorry, that's a weird anecdote. Um, but with a few exceptions, the rest was the entire team. And so I still remember this is people are like, I don't care about the fourth fire, Joe, but that's okay. I'm going to tell you, anyways, because I still remember <laughs> the fire's first home game because they, they had to coordinate with the Brahmas. Some they had to play at Will Rogers or the fourth convention center. So they started on the road for like five or six games. And their first home game was about. Um, later in the in October, maybe at the beginning of November, and they raised the championship banner and everybody on the ice and everybody on the bench, none of them contributed to that banner, and the entire Brahma's team that were the fire team, with the championship rings held high, were all in the in the stands of the Fort Worth Convention Center, just holding up their rings and looking oh, up at wow. the banner and clapping. Yeah. And some of them even had their like championship hats on um from the year before. And that is an image that I'm not gonna ever be able to get out of my mind. And that's where it was just like This was super petty. This was a super petty thing. And I don't know that it needed to happen because as as we know, and I think you detail it later in the book, the WPHL eventually folded and was absorbed by the
1: Central Hockey League, most of the teams that were still in existence. So I mean, it was actually that it was the other way around. It just it's just that they called it the Central Hockey League. You oh. know? I mean, it's debatable. It's debatable right. who was running it. And, you know, it's kind of like an airline merger, you know, when United yeah. and Continental merged who was really, you know, it's called United now, but it's actually was based in Houston. Right. And so, right. That, I mean, that's a good yeah. point.
0: That, right. I mean, they're, they called it the Central Hockey League. But I mean, it. who's to say? But it was it was a merger between between those two leagues. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that whole story so while it seemed like it had zero relevance i'm tying it back in because of the fact that all of that shitshowery was indicative of sort of the life and death of minor league sports all of that can just happen on a whim and and a handshake in in a lot of instances so i want to know uh what drew you to Obviously we talked about sports and your background and what made you interested but what um in writing about sports but where did you first sort of get the idea or get the lead to write this article in Texas Monthly about the Austin Ice Bats
1: Well it just seemed so obvious right like <laughs> hockey in Texas high concept right? right how can this be true And I mean you know as a journalist you're always looking for a story that hasn't been told before, or, sure. or, or you, you know, you can get bored telling the same stories over and over, you know, you want to find new things. So, I mean, this is kind of like, you know, this is a classic genre, right? This is your, your, you know, your John Feinstein, Bobby Knight book, or, you know, your George Flint, you know, who wrote multiple books where he was obviously a participant, not just an observer, but like, you know, no one had written a book about hockey in Texas, you know, and yeah. so, or a story even. So, so yeah, it's just that part just seemed like a no-brainer, you know, and, and then, uh, for all the reasons that, that the hockey itself, you know, that was worth trying, like you said, you know, the, you know, the, it was the violence and there's like, you know, there's the weird, not, not just the appeal of the sport. I found this, uh, I, I must've read it at the time, but I don't remember it. But when, when I was preparing for our talk, I, I, found an old review, uh, in a Canadian publication, uh, Quill and choir. And, uh, the guy said, uh, most Americans like our national game because it perfectly mirrors their barbarous national anima. <laughs> 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 so you didn't even make that about Texas, but I was like, yeah, perfect. You know? so, but at the same time, we also, and you know, this being from North Texas, you know, there, there were, you know, you had Albertans, you know, people in the oil business, people in the rodeo business, Canadian cowboys. Yeah. And then you had all those, all those car, car people from Michigan who loved hockey and came down to Texas that were such a big part of the Dallas Stars really success. Yeah. you know, And, and so that played a part too.
0: It was definitely, I remember growing up and. Uh, Because I played varsity ice hockey for three years. um, And I remember, and everybody's like, varsity ice hockey in Texas? And I'm like, yeah, well, the Dallas Stars did that. I mean, I love the Fort with Fire and the Fort Brahmas, but it was the Dallas Stars and Brett Hull getting that game-winning goal to get the World Cup. World Cup, my goodness. Do you see where my brain is? (laughs) That just ended a couple months ago. The Stanley Cup over the Buffalo Sabres back in 1999. I think it was the 98-99 season that they won it um in triple overtime and was it a no goal or was it a goal well the ref called it a goal, <laughs> he was in the so crease a <laughs> i'll never forget that as long if you talk to anybody from buffalo it was not a goal he was in the crease um but that's kind of an inside baseball if you know it you know it um but uh but that's what it as soon as they won the stanley cup because they've been around ever since they moved down from minnesota but it was when they won the stanley cup that interest Boomed and it exploded. Rinks popped up everywhere. Youth leagues went up in enrollment because everybody was doing roller hockey up until that point because that was the hot thing. And then when they won the cup, no one wanted to play roller hockey anymore. They just wanted to play ice hockey. And that's sort of where all this expansion came from. And so it's interesting to me that you can have all of these teams throughout Texas, but it really takes someone at the level of the stars to really drive that interest. Across the board. So, how did you get the pitch for the book? Were you trying to write more of an an additional article, and then you collected the interviews, and then you sort of pitched it as a book? How did that How did that process go for you?
1: Yeah, once I, I did the Texas Monthly story, I just felt like there was more. You know, there was more to to tell, and yeah. that I was you know, in, in retrospect, seems crazy, but that I was actually willing to go spend six months riding around on a bus with these guys instead <laughs> of just a week. You know. <laughs> But, uh, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. And it was, it was, it was tons of fun. So um, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't a super commercial idea. I mean, my publisher was Canadian, you know, the, okay, the yeah, American yeah. publishers were not as, American publishers were, were more skeptical than, you know, the, you know, I had a good, a Canadian agent and a Canadian publisher, but yeah, um, I just, I don't really remember like what made me decide to do it, but of course it was a new season. It was a new team, same owners, you know, uh, one of the players from the first story was going to be the coach. Right. So I, I remember, you know, I guess I met them for, for, you know, breakfast somewhere on a, in a diner or, or a cafe or something, you know, in, in, in North Austin, you know, near where the players lived and like, you know, their little generic, you know, apartment complex. Yep. And, uh, and of course, the, the team owners were like, well, what are you going to pay us? You know, to, to, you know, if we let you write this book, I was like, yeah, that's not how, that's not how <laughs> works, you, <know? laughs> you just have to let me do it or not. But <laughs> I'll sign
0: your copy uh, of the book. That's what that's what you can
1: get now <laughs> years later after the book came out because one of the owners was a guy named paul lawless and he he had played for the flyers and you know he'd been kind of a hot shot nhl prospect who ended up just having kind of a modest nhl career and then a, a much more successful one in the ahl you know which is the highest level of the minors you know, right. so not really the bush leagues but also not the big the big time um i was sitting in the bat cave the travis yeah. county expo center you know years later you know totally different generation of vice bats players and teams and owners but um, there was a VIP section behind one goal, and then a lot of times that's where the players' wives or the ex-players or the owners would sit. And I had a friend who liked to sit there, you know, it's basically the club seating. So I usually, I would go visit them usually like for a period and sit there, you know, if I was in the press box or yeah. whatever. And, uh, and Paul Allis was sitting behind me, and I don't remember exactly what was said, but you know, someone made a reference to something about him in the book. And then it became obvious that he hadn't read the book. He was like, "Oh, did, did people talk shit about me in your book?" <laughs> it's like, well, you know, you were the owner, and you were then the head coach, you know. So, so yeah, there were probably a few. You probably had a few critics. <laughs> it's um, it's interesting to me.
0: I I would say this. Um, I think one of the things that I love about minor league sports is the ability to kind of understand. On a very uh, specific level, why someone is still d- playing the game, you know, I think, and you detail it in your book of like, there's a guy, I mean, there was a, oh, I forget the guy's name, you'll probably remember him, but you you had a mention of some players that are game to game and this guy was shift to shift. They would inject his knees in between each period, so he could get out there and and be the enforcer because they were they were their depth was low in this particular part yeah. of the season. And and that's the that's the thing. Like I think anybody can look at that and go, "This is crazy. Why would you do this? Why would you participate?" If you like, I think in a lot of ways, uh, we as a society, I'm kind of making a general observation, I think are conditioned to be like almost the Ricky, Bobby I, I jokingly referred to Ricky Bobby offline in a different situation, but almost in a Ricky Bobby situation, if you're not first or last, right, if you're not in the NHL, if you're not in the show, then what's the point? Why even participate? And I think the why for every single person is different. If you're younger, it's to get the, the seasoning to get your shot. If you're a little bit older, it's a way to kind of use it as a pivot point in your career while you're trying to figure out what might be next. And for some folks, it really might just be, this is what I love to do and I'm always going to be involved in the sport. And if I still got a little bit of gas left in the tank, why not maybe get another get another shot? And I think it's so fascinating to me to kind of hear every single person's unique reason for why they do what they do, especially because I'm also a huge soccer fan. And so I approach it from the standpoint of, if you're in say take england where the system now this is very like aspirational but you can be in the lowest minor league right. and win your way to the top theoretically and so you can you can almost make the understanding in case of like well they're still playing because they want to get promoted so they get to be in the top league and they can you know earn their way up but in reality Teams are buying younger players, they're developing. It's the same that we see now. It's just dressed a little bit differently. So I'm curious about your observations as you were writing this book. What were some of the unique perspectives you had on players that were maybe winding down their careers but still
1: lacing up the skates every night? Well, the guy that you mentioned, I think that was Bruce Shoebottom, right? Yes. He actually played in the NHL. Yeah. So he played for the Boston Bruins, and he was – yeah. But, yeah, it was kind of like, you know, he was like an old – I mean, he was probably 32 years old, right? But he was like an an old bluesman almost. Like, he didn't know any other way. He was going to play the blues. He was going to go out there and skate. You know, it wasn't going to be his living. It wasn't going to be his ticket to stardom. But but he just wanted to do it. And I think, you know, that was – with the kids, yeah, you had a few of them that still thought they were going to get somewhere. And then you had the ones that were like they were into college or they were going to go back to college or, you know, they knew they had jobs waiting for them, whether they're white collar jobs or blue collar jobs, you know, what's the rush. You know, you know, you can go be a banker later, you can go back to the farm later. So, you know, the trick, I don't know how much of it comes out in the book, but I, I certainly saw it over the subsequent years covering other teams. You know, how do you motivate, you know, a team when half your guys have decided, well, I'm just kind of doing this for fun. (laughs) You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, y'all want to win, but like if, if you've, if you've lost that dream, if you've already kind of accepted, well, yeah, I'm not actually going anywhere with this. You know, it's not my ticket to the big time. It's not my ticket to money. It's just, I just like to play hockey. So I'm going to play hockey and I'm going to drink beer and I'm going to, you know, you know, See the girls in Austin, and, right. and you know it's it's a fun thing to do for a few years. Well, that's great, but you know, but 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 that makes it a lot harder to get someone to go in the corner and you know take a hit to make the play. You know when it's right. the playoffs in May. You know, yeah. and it's still just minor league hockey. You know,
0: I always wondered as a kid, like I didn't see the appeal in having a in getting a minor league franchise for any sport, any sport specifically. Yeah. I understood the pitch to get a major league sports franchise in the city. But I didn't understand the appeal of a minor league team. Um, And I think it's that first or last mentality, right? But I think as a a, uh, owner, general manager, coach, however, when you're in the position, well, coach is probably a little bit different. But if you're in this sort of administrative position of some of these teams, I think the why has to be more focused, more community centric. Unless less like we're going to win all the championships because you want to win championships. But I think it has to be about are we trying to develop the game? Are we trying to grow the community? Are we trying to be an opportunity for the community in a lot of ways? And if the answer is yes, then I think that's where the real value is, especially because you see like having all of these minor league teams, Amarillo, Lubbock, El Paso, Austin, Fort Worth, Rio Grande Valley later on, right? You're mm-hmm. introducing the sport of hockey to an entire group of individuals that will never, that historically, now like everything's accessible for the most part, but historically right. never have the opportunity to view this sport. And perhaps it could fundamentally change somebody's life. And that's what I think is the the value in having sort of a minor league hockey team that's easily accessible to go see and watch. and It's not as steep as a stars
1: ticket, right. Um, To be able to go and, and appreciate it. For sure. Affordability, you know, access to the players, even for me as a journalist, access to the, players to tell their stories, you know, to, you know, I mean, I interviewed Brett Hull and Mike Badano and, you know, I probably got 10 minutes with them on, right. you know, sitting on a bench in the locker room, you know, with these, with the ice bats I could get 10 days, you know, so, so that helped. And, you know, I come from indie rock, you know, so still even now, you know, if I go to a concert, you know, I want to be up close. I want to be in a small room, not in a big room, yeah. you know? And, and so it has all that, you know, at the same time, you know, you kind of alluded to this earlier, You know, there was there was there a lot of characters There are a lot of shysters. There's a little bit of corruption, a lot of ego, a lot of a lot of arena deals. You know, probably half the hockey teams that you mentioned in the South only existed because there was just some arena that, you know, wanted to wanted to try to fill their building. You know, you know, and the arena might not have needed to exist or there might have been two arenas. So suddenly there's two teams and nobody actually (laughs) needed two teams. You know, that happened in Fort Worth. That happened in uh, Arkansas, Little Rock. It happened in Cincinnati, where I used to live. You know, so, so yeah, I think what you have in Texas now, though, actually is, you know, I won't say pure, but, but it's sort of closer to what you described. It's things have shaken out. And now it's mostly a junior hockey state. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, very connected to the stars and the way they've nurtured the game and tried to grow in the game. And so now you have teams in Odessa and and Amarillo and El Paso, and they're all junior teams. And like if you play high varsity high school hockey in North Texas, you know, you might then go El Paso and, you know, play for the junior team. And yeah. then maybe that gets you to college or it gets you to a, a better junior team. And that's really all we have now, other than the, the Texas stars, I guess the Allen Americans are, are the only, uh, yeah, that's true. they're the only minor pro team left. Yep. Double a, you know, minor pro team left right. in Texas. And I, you know, I definitely miss that stuff. You know, but... I
0: do. I do too. But you're correct about the purity of the game is more uh, prevalent when you have that sort of younger hopeful optimism of some of these players right they have they're gonna want to go digging into the boards in may in a playoff game because maybe a scout's watching and this is the move that books my ticket to the next level and so you it's it's still affordable accessible and the ability to to have all the things you mentioned um but hopefully a player's not getting injections before every period to go out for for a shift.
1: and do Yeah, the play not as hopefully not a 17 or ever. And look, there, there was a, the players like that, you know, in the minors as well. They played horrible tolls. I mean, in the NHL, there are guys who have played horrible tolls because yeah. of painkillers and addiction and fighting. And and at least there they were doing it for millions of dollars and, right. you know to, to have done that in the minors. And I mean, we lost a guy just a couple weeks ago, a, a former ice bat. Ryan Pisiak to, to suicide yeah. who'd been, you know, he was a, he was a brawler, you know, he certainly must've been, you know, struggling with, with painkiller addiction over the years. He was a wrestler. So, you know, but yeah. both of those sports, you know, are brutal, Yeah. Um, you know? And so, yeah, there, there is a dark, a dark side to that as well.
0: One thing that is, that is key, I think, is we're starting to, to wrap up. I want to, I want to talk about that. Um, You know, you bring up a good point with, as we're learning more and more about effects like CTE, right, Um, uh, from primarily the football world, but I know that I think George Larratt came out and talked about his past history of being a brawler for the Edmonton Oilers and and what a toll that that took, and, and a few other players have come out as well. And so I think what we have to examine as we're thinking about the way the sport can evolve, right? You and I aren't going to solve this by sitting here talking on a on a on an evening uh, when we're recording this. But I think as we a society, collective society, learn more, we need to continue to sort of um ask questions of institutions on what we're doing and why, whether it's padding, whether it's rules, whether it's um when to play and when to rest. I mean, there's a lot of, I think, as a culture, we've started to ask more questions, which has led to better decisions about health and, and wellness that we didn't know to ask historically. And so I think we're starting to learn more, which is going to help us. And hopefully um, people aren't struggling in silence with a lot of these, these, these um, for lack of a better word, demons in, in some case. And, and these these things that are kind of, kind of happening on the periphery we're able to acknowledge them and identify them pretty early on so people can adjust and pivot and then live the full life that they deserve to live. So that's just kind of something I wanted to, to acknowledge. And I want to ask you um, from an advice perspective, if somebody is out there and they're like, Oh, I want to get into sports journalism or or I want to write, what is um, maybe what's what an, a piece of advice you would like to give them.
1: <laughs> I don't want to bring I don't want to you know bring the mood down but you know my my joke is usually uh the um in the movie say anything you know when yes. when, uh, when when Ione Sky is giving her a commencement address and and she tells them that her advice is go back <laughs> you know the, the you know the changes to journalism over I mean we're just this month alone right I mean, this week a bunch of people have been getting laid off everybody yeah. seems to be laying off eight percent of their staff uh vox media sb nation blogs yeah, you know are nice gone down it. yep so yeah so so it's you know it's a tough so I'm, yeah i'm always a little stumped to be like you know how do you get started in this business but i mean on the other hand there's more access you know and more opportunities than ever you know and and, and so you know, these days, of course, I mean, social media or, or a blog or just doing it yourself. You know, yeah. I mean, I feel like right now it starts with doing it yourself. I mean, when I was at the Austin Chronicle, that was a place that I could physically, you know, put words in every week and, and they would even pay me a little money for it. And <laughs> these days you, you can just do that yourself, yeah. and, you know, um, you know, beyond that, I think, you know, learn, learn about, um, you know, that it's, you're not doing you're not doing it for yourself. Right. You know, you know, you're you're doing it for a readership. Yeah or you're doing it for the people you're trying to tell stories about. Yeah, I like yeah. it. That's good. I,
0: uh, I as, a, as a consumer, uh, as well as someone that likes to put content out, but I would say as a consumer, I'm more drawn to stories that feel that they're highlighting something authentic, right? So they're, they're for uh, me as a reader or they're for the person that's being elevated. I'm a huge fan of, this isn't the things to check out section. I'll get there in a minute, but I'm a big fan of humans of New York and the way in which Brandon, I forget his last name, Brandon something um, highlights those individuals with a photo and a story. And it really connects. I feel like I'm connected to them and they're not always like, some are happy, some are sad, some are just funny. um, Some are very uh, upsetting and they're all the human experience all rolled into one. And so the more i feel the sort of genuine vibe coming out of whatever content i'm consuming and it doesn't feel like oh i am just highlighting the cool thing that i'm doing with my whatever in the moment um the more i uh feel like we're all in this together Um, yes i will watch a video of somebody talking about what a wonderful quiche they made to see if i can replicate it (laughs) spoiler alert i rarely can replicate it but uh, often I'm not drawn to the, the individual talking about themselves specifically. Um, so I want to ask you as a final question before we move to the final segment of the episode. I want to ask you, um, is there a particular story in the book that didn't make it that you wanted to include? Or, I mean, we did talk about, I've got the paperback version of Zamboni Rodeo and you talked about a chapter being added. So I don't know if you want to talk about a story that maybe didn't make it or maybe a chapter that was added. Um,
1: I've definitely been asked that question before, and, and I think I answered it and said no, that, that I was able to put everything in. And, you know, maybe I so you know, maybe I had to, you know, gloss over a few things or there was a uh, and I said this in the interview. There, there was an anecdote about uh, a, a guy who played in the NHL discussing the uh, equipment. And I don't mean hockey equipment of another player in the NHL. And uh, and I think I I declined to name the player, you know, <laughs> in the book. But um but I don't feel like anything actually happened. You know, yeah. it was like, oh, you know. We, we can't print that i mean that said you know i've read part of the book you know the culture the locker room talk all that kind of stuff sometimes i i I've grown to think of how some of that stuff might hold up and that sports are still struggling with that even you know maybe more than ever you know yeah. but, but like you talked about you know the people caring more about their bodies, is not you know not having that whole culture of oh the game above everything you know and obviously we also have seen with with black lives matter and and with what's been happening in, in soccer you know that uh, a lot of bad things have happened just, just you know, by putting the game above all else, and, yeah. and we're only now still learning to put you know the people who play the game above the game itself. That's right. So, uh, so yeah, I don't know how some of that stuff would hold up. So yeah, I the Where Are They Now was written just like probably. 2002 2003 okay. so it's like not even up to date so yeah i desperately need to do it and we've talked about this already off yeah. offline you know maybe making a video or doing some audio interviews with yeah. people you know unfortunately there's some really sad ones i mean the the, yeah. the star of the book jim burton the, the head coach you know died of a heart attack really young and I mean, he was, you know, it was just one of those things, right? I mean, he was, he was, he was an athlete, you know? I mean, I mean, he smoked, okay. He smoked a lot, but, <laughs> <laughs> but still, <laughs> he, he, yes. smoked, he smoked between periods, but yeah, he was an athlete. He was a pro like, scratch golfer, you know? Yeah. We just lost him way too soon. And then Rob Hartnell, the guy on the cover actually died of, of cancer during the pandemic. Mm. You know, another, another rough one. Yeah. There are also, you know, many happy stories, of course, of, of, of some of those. Same dirt bags from the ice baths locker room, you know, are now married fathers with two, three children, driving them around a hockey practice of their own. And um Jeremy Thompson, who was the, you know, kind of rough and tumble, you know, Western Canadian, one of the thugs on the on the ice baths team, became a city councilman in, in Medicine Hat for, for several years. And his brother, Rocky, is still a very successful hockey guy. He's actually assistant coach of the Flyers. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, there's, so there's tons of stories like that. Um, I, you know, I don't think many, not very many of these guys probably are out of hockey. Yeah. You know, I feel like hockey when you're, I mean, granted they're Canadian for the most part, but when hockey stays with you, you know, it stays, stays with you forever. Um, Keith Moran from the book, I actually got to go to the frozen four with him in in Boston years ago. He was from new England. He was one of the college boys. And uh, so well, so, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, 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 you know, all of us are bound, you know, by this ice bats thing forever in some way. I love it.
0: I love it. Well, I mean, I don't even play the sport anymore, and I'm here. I can't get out of interviewing people about it because I am just drawn back into it so, so much. I just it, it's I love it. I love it so much. OK, so we are going to pivot to things to check out. It's a segment where I provide a recommendation of something to read, watch and listen to. To my guests and uh, to my to my listeners and to my, my guests, and I invite my I invite my guests to do the same. It's been a long day, so I'm tripping over my words a little bit, but I will go first, and then Jason, I'll invite you uh, to share any recommendations you have. So obviously, the number one recommendation is Zamboni Rodeo. If you haven't picked <laughs> it up, it's a little bit hard to find. I will post um, some links in the show notes, and it's going to be up to you, fair listener, to find your own copy um, in the in the Wild West, as it were of the book Landscape. Um, And this is a good opportunity to let people know. I've uh, mentioned this a few times, but the DetoxPodcast.com website was revamped last August. And now, instead of having some show notes in in the description of the episode, we have that as well. But we are starting and have now gotten the official uh, sort of show notes blog aspect where you can learn a little bit more about the episode. You can listen to the episode in there. You can still listen to it traditionally, but there's a little bit more for you if you go to the website and check it out. Uh, Those blog links will be on social media, but they are featured on the landing page. If you go to deeptalkspodcast.com, you can check out the feature content and see a little bit more about this particular episode. I got some, uh, uh, if there's any videos that we're referencing or those types of things are usually embedded into the blog at that point. So all that to say, preamble my recommendations number one a book that you need to check out if you've been listening to this episode you're like i just need more hockey more sports in my life well i'm gonna tell you all of my recommendations are hockey based so i don't think you're gonna uh, hate it blades of glory the true story of a young team bred to win uh jason are you familiar with this book by the legendary john rosengren
1: i you know i am aware of its existence but i have not read it yeah john rosengren, uh,
0: Good friend of the podcast been on the podcast two different times. One, I asked him, uh, can you please come and talk about this book? This is one of my absolute favorite books. Now this book and Zamboni Rodeo are my two favorite hockey books that have ever (laughs) been written in the entire world. Um, so John Rosengren wrote this book. If you've read Friday night lights, it's Friday night lights, but for high school hockey in Minnesota, it is fantastic. Right. He follows an entire championship-winning team, historically championship-winning team, through uh, the, head co- the, his- the head coach that's been there for decades. It's his final season, so he follows him through the whole season, similar to Zamboni Rodeo, documents everything that goes on, documents how serious. And it's interesting to me to see the, uh, the juxtaposition between how intense the players and the parents are from this book versus Zamboni Rodeo where there's a little bit of a different approach from a player perspective. Um, and it all has to do with kind of where you're at in your life and career. Same time frame, 97.98, 97.98. So same, 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 same time frame. So definitely check that out and check out the episode what's I did the... with John. It's Blades of Glory, not to be confused with Will Ferrell's
1: movie. <laughs> right. Which, which, of course, when I Googled it immediately, but what's, the, what's the high school was what I, was oh, what I wanted to know. the
0: high school or the Jefferson... Um, hold on. It is the Jefferson ja- the Bloomington Jefferson Jaguars.
1: Okay. All right. So suburban Minneapolis, yes. right? Yeah. Yes, that's right. I just learned because we did have a few Minnesota guys on the ice baths, you know, who certainly played their share of Minnesota high school hockey. Right. So yeah.
0: <laughs> it, um, it even has an anecdote that uh, major league hockey in the NHL, the North Stars didn't do well because it wasn't as exciting as the high school hockey. And so when they brought the wild in, they had to rethink like how they marketed that. So that's, that's interesting. Um, the My other recommendation, uh, a show Um, so I mentioned the Fort Worth Fire. There was actually a documentary. It's on YouTube. I'll I'll embed it in the show notes so you can go see it. It's called, uh, it's called, uh, Blaze of Glory. It's about the 1996, 1997 Fort Worth Fire championship winning team. I remember having this on VHS at my parents' house because they gave everybody that worked for the team a copy. And it is just, it documents their entire season. It's wonderful 90s, like, Music. It was. It, it's wonderful. So Rush Olson, who was the play-by-play announcer for the Fort Worth Fire on their local feed, put the documentary together and released it and, and distributed it out. So it's it's a fantastic uh, slice of nostalgia to go check it out. And I will also say, I'll try and put uh, maybe one of these uh, in the show notes as well, that entire actually championship winning game when the Fire beat the Memphis River Kings back in 1997 is also on YouTube period by period. So you can actually go watch
1: the full game. And that means that they're going to be beating several members of the Zamboni Radio Ice Pats too. That's and, right. You That's know, right. It, multiple multiple characters in the book were on that River Kings team. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So you can go.
0: You can go check that out. I, I remember list. This is again another another anecdote. Uh, I remember uh, the the game. So the that particular championship series played a 3-5-2 – no, uh, sorry, a 2-3-2 series. So it was best of seven. First two and four, three in Memphis. Um, and I remember the Fire were down three games to two. And the, the, the last g- – the game uh, – no, that's not true. There was – when was it? I remember they won – I'm trying to remember now and now I can't. It's been it's been I was it was I was a wee lad as it were, so I don't quite remember. <laughs> but I remember the last game they played in Memphis. That was the turning point where it would have gotten really bad and they didn't have it televised and you know, it's the 90s, you can't stream anything. And so we're listening to a lo- there's a, ra- a Charlie uh Charlie Hodges, shout out to Charlie Hodges if he's still around, was the radio play-by-play announcer for the Fire. And so he also did college basketball and a few other things and he was broadcasting the the game over a local radio station that we ha- kept having to adjust the feed to hear the the radio station pickup and i just remember hearing the fire win fire win and like everybody's (laughs) booing and you can barely hear him over all the booing and it was like oh they're coming back to fort worth and they're gonna have an advantage and they're gonna play and they're gonna win and all the things so um that was that was fun so that's my uh show to check out and the podcast i'm gonna be a little uh last thing here recommendation i'm gonna be Little biased, and I'm gonna give folks a recommendation for an upcoming podcast uh, that I am doing with my good friend Al Rooney, or if you've read Zamboni Rodeo, Looney Rooney. It's called Cut Tales from the Minor League, and it tracks one particular minor league hockey player, Al Rooney, and his career from uh, from sort of how he got started into hockey, um, how he stumbled into hockey. And or danced his way into hockey, rather. And then how he had <laughs> this sort of interesting minor league career, um, and then moved to coaching. And, and now he's pretty out of hockey, except that his, his, both of his kids have played and his, his daughter's currently playing. So we we chart sort of like, it's the same idea as Zamboni rodeo, but instead of one season, it's one player throughout their entire career, and that's a podcast mini series. If you're already subscribed to the Detox podcast feed, it will be pushed to your feed. But we will of course share uh, the links when the separate feed is up, so you can just subscribe to Cut directly. But it's four or five episode mini series uh, that's coming out uh, later in, in Q one of twenty twenty three. So uh, Jason, I know that was that was a lot, but what are you? Uh, what's a recommendation to read, watch,
1: or listen to? uh, for our, well, I'll business. endorse, I'll endorse the cut podcast as well, first of all. Thank you. And, uh, Appreciate it. <laughs> and I'll, and, and since we're, you know, since we're shedding conflict of interest, I'll, I'll also, uh, I'll also mention the old Texas monthly podcast, Boomtown, which was set, set in West Texas, you know, set in the oil business, which, which my wife uh, Susan Elizabeth Shepard also worked on. And, uh, I'm fan, as we talked about when I became a guest on your podcast, I'm famously not a, a huge podcast person. I spend most of my time listening, listening to music, right. Or, or kind of, Typing and, you know, not, not uh, listening, but, uh, but yeah, um, well, this is definitely one I should have prepared better for because I'm that person like, hey, what are you listening to? And then it's always like, uh, duh, <laughs> duh, right, but um, I did just do, I guess, for Texas Monthly, I, I did um, two of my favorite uh, records of the year. So they're, they're still pretty recent. One of them was uh, the Delines, which is a band from Portland. And they're if they're kind of a fun story because um they came out of another band called richmond fontaine which is just like a oregon sort of country rock band but then their front man willie vlatan is a novelist and he's written a bunch of great books so so this is a double recommendation i guess um he, he wrote uh, lean on pete and the motel life both of which became movies and and he's from reno but he's lived in oregon and, and he's kind of like i mean this is such a cliche way to put it but you know a real kind of working class poet you know kind of a almost a modern, you know, urban Steinbeck type person, you know, just, just writing about, you know, regular people in Oregon. And, and uh, some of them are unbearably sad, but I guess he eventually got tired of fronting his rock band. And uh, he hooked up with uh, Amy Boone, who's from Texas, who was in a band called the Damn Nations in Austin with her sister and started writing songs for her. And so the, the lines is a band fronted entirely by her and you know he writes for her and like he talks to her and gets ideas for songs from her and she's got this great sort of torchy you know beautiful kind of weary voice and the, their, their last record um the sea drift is actually set mostly in, in galveston that's awesome and i'm not sure that willie actually knows anything about galveston but you know he's 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 a novelist he can make stuff up so right. <laughs> uh, was, that was one of my favorite records and you know all those musicians are like Oregon lifers and like that's the other thing. I just you know, like when I was talking about you know Bruce Shoebottom, I just you know more and more. I just love lifers. You know, I just love people. You know, we used to think it was sort of weird. Like, why are the Rolling Stones still making rock and roll? Old people shouldn't make rock and roll, right? But like, like now it's just like it's a job. You know, and it's yeah. a and it's a calling. And uh, you know, I, I get I see a lot of people over sixty now making music who aren't getting paid very well for it, but they don't know anything else. That's what they want to do. Mm-hmm. So um, so a music recommendation would be a band called Eyelids. Also from Portland, I guess I already technically did a music, rec- a music recommendation by yeah, including the lines, but um, they're, uh, they're also people that have just been at it forever and ever. And um, they work with Peter Buck from R.E.M. and then Victor Kromenacker from Camper Van Beethoven actually moved to Portland and is now their bass player. And um, so when I lived in Portland. You know, they were like a band you'd go see every, every, you know, twice, two, three times a year. And they would always like pull out all the stops and do something crazy. Like one time, Peter jumped on stage with them and they played R.E.M. covers for Halloween. They all dressed up in costumes and played Bauhaus covers. And they're about to go on tour. That's and, awesome. You know, who knows? I, I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss not being in Portland to see them. So I'm looking forward to seeing them here. That's awesome. And, um, you know, like everybody else, I just finished the the Sundance Film Festival, you know, seeing a few things at Sundance online. So I've been out of it for like TV, but, but like everybody else, I've been, um, been looking forward to uh, checking out poker face on Peacock, yep. uh, you know, the, the Josh Leon, and I watched one of them and, you know, I'm a big fan of, of Columbo and a big fan of, um, you know, old serial television, you yeah. know, after, you know, all the age of all this great epic storytelling, but sometimes it's nice to just have a show. You can watch one episode at a time and, yes. and uh, it seems like that's what they're trying to do. So I'm, I'm all for that. That's cool. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. We have tried to make Zamboni Rodeo the movie and Zamboni Rodeo the TV show, but uh, you know, it, it hasn't quite uh, qu- hasn't quite happened. I think one day, one day, um, and I would uh, I'm going to say it
0: on the record here that uh, any any way in which I could be a part of that, I would love to do it. If you need me to hold a boom mic, I'm happy to do it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, it's 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 a great. So I will uh, I'll, I'll wrap us up here by saying um, that I truly, truly think that we learn so much about the human experience when we examine the storytelling within sports. And even better to me is the storytelling in the minor leagues of sports, because you really get at sort of what makes an individual tick. And I love that. I'm insanely fascinated by it. Um, And thank you for coming on the show to, to talk about to talk about it. And I hope there's no more copies to find a Zamboni rodeo after this, because everybody's bought it up. Cause they're just like, I got to I got to hear, I got to hear about this. So it's fantastic.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me and hopefully I'll make more.
0: Yes, yes <laughs> absolutely. All right. Well, uh, oh, I almost forgot. So Jason, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Oh, I guess it's, it's Twitter. It's a uh, at Cohen also Instagram. Uh, My websites are both kind of down right now. There is or was a zamboniradio.com, you know, and hopefully I'll relaunch that at some point in addition to kind of a personal website. And uh, yeah, other than that, you can always find my stuff at Texas Monthly off and on.
0: I love it. Well... Like I said, Jason, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Can't wait to have you on again so we can continue to talk about obscure hockey and music references. And the listeners have to do a lot of Googling. I think that's the... the (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right. Well, listeners, you've been detoxing with Detox. Now go and make a more inclusive world. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at detoxpodcast or visit detoxpodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's v o k a l n o w.com.